Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. And these are words from the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is the word of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Bree. Well, if you have been following along in our Merce uh, Messiah series, this coming week you're going to be reading the Gospel of Matthew. And we're reading in the New Living Translation, which is closer to a paraphrase in the sense that it's a, a reader's version um, of the text. And that's what we heard as we're um, reading out of the NLT on Sunday mornings as well. Um, but, but for the purpose of the messages, I'm going to be drawing from the New Revised Standard Version, a more traditional uh, reading of this text. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find what many have described or labeled as the most important public address ever given in the history of the world to humankind. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, given by Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's also in Luke's Gospel in a slightly different version. Uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew's version, and the introduction to that whole sermon is what is known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Beatitude means blessing or blessed. And so the key interpretive word uh, for these Beatitudes is the word blessed, of course, right? Uh, sometimes people use the word happy. Happy are those. Uh, happy are those. A blessing is an undeserved favor. It is an undeserved grace. And what we see in the Beatitudes is that this grace that comes from living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven places you on a path that takes you somewhere you did not expect to go. So Jesus came, and in the Gospel of Matthew, he came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven and inaugurating the kingdom of heaven, that this new reality known as the reign of God is overlaid onto the reality that we can see and experience, and this new reality known as the kingdom of heaven will come to completion when Christ returns and all creation will be made new. Now is the inauguration of that kingdom, and here's what it looks like to live as a citizen of the reign of heaven. 
and these are the Beatitudes, and they are totally unexpected. We're going to look at each one just for a couple of minutes and reflect on them in turn. The first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's right, Graham. You preach it, brother. You know, poets, poets will say that, uh, that the most important line in a poem is the first line. And so many poets will go through great lengths to make sure that they get that first line right. And they get that first line right, and the rest of the poem will flow naturally. One of my favorite poets is David White, and he will often repeat the first line because it's so significant. So it is in poetry, so it is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opens this inaugural address with this line, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you can read the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount as common on that first verse. Everything flows out of that very first beatitude, and it's not what we expected. What we expected was for Jesus to say, blessed are those who are spiritually abundant. Blessed are those who have such rich spiritual lives. The love of God is just exuding from them, and you can sense the Spirit. They walk around with halos on them. Blessed are those who are extremely spiritual. But no, that's not what he says. We might also think maybe he would say, blessed are the poor in health, uh, blessed are the poor in wealth, or, or, um, or blessed are the downtrodden because one day they will get into heaven. And that will be a great day. Uh, so if, if you have little in this life, great will be your reward in heaven. That's not what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs now is the kingdom of heaven. There were two words available to Matthew to, for the word poor. Uh, he could have used the word pinnis, which means uh, like struggling to make ends meet. But he used the word tokos, which means completely destitute. Blessed are those who are completely destitute, who are at their wit's end, who are at the end of the rope. You see, true spirituality is never something that we attain. It's not something that we achieve or that we reach for. It's something that we enter into, and it's something that we receive only by admitting how bad we are at it. It doesn't matter how good you are at the spiritual disciplines, how faithful or devoted you are, no one climbs their way into the kingdom of heaven. Those who feel like they are saints are not one. You know, the true saints that we look to as examples, as models for us uh, in the spiritual life, uh, they always lamented how bad they were at prayer. I mean, we're following these great people who said that they're terrible at prayer and learning from how to be like them. And so when preachers stand in the pulpits and say things like, go out there and be an example, go be role models, go out there and, and live in the spirit for all the world to see, the poor in spirit just want to crawl under the pews and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. There is no 
arrogance that is quite as bad as spiritual arrogance. If you're serious about being a disciple of Jesus Christ and following him, he will take you to place after place after place each and every day that simply reminds you how bad you are at discipleship. And accepting the grace of God is not just how we begin our relationship with Jesus. It's a daily discovery. It's the only way that we can live in communion with God is by the grace that is coming, unfolding as mystery into our lives each and every day. Blessed are those who are not good at being a Christian. Blessed are, are the prodigals who run out of ideas and dreams and fantasies and they have nothing left when they come home. Blessed is the tax collector who's discovered that in spite of cheating those around him, he still doesn't have a life that he wants, and so he repents and asks for mercy. Blessed is the thief on the cross whose last words are not justification or anger, but simply, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Blessed are those who finally know how desperately they need mercy. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does that say to the elder brother in the parable? What does that say for, for those who have lived generally good lives and have been obedient and want to use their life to make a difference? Well, nothing really. Uh, the point of the parable is it doesn't matter how much you've done or how much you have not done. What matters is what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. I think this, is, this idea is beautifully portrayed in one of Rembrandt's, Rembrandt's paintings. It's called uh, The Woman Taken in Adultery. Isn't that a striking title, by the way? The Woman Taken in Adultery. Here in this painting, Rembrandt uh, uses light to proclaim the gospel, which is typical for Rembrandt. And, uh, and, 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 in this painting, Jesus, you notice, is standing taller than everybody else. And all of the light in the painting is emanating from him. He's the source of the light. So the woman who's been cast down at his feet is low enough to be in the light that emanates from Christ. Strikingly, she's wearing all white uh, she is actually dressed in splendor in this painting. Why? Because she's in the light of Christ. The condemning, judging men who are, uh, you can't really see are in the dark. They're not standing so tall and they're standing outside the light. But interestingly, even a couple of these men are in the light because of their position in relationship to Jesus. Ironically, one of them is painted in scarlet, scandalous red. But even he is in the light. Not because he's standing tall, but because of where he is standing in relationship to Jesus. Again, it's not a matter of what you do or have not done. It's a matter of where you stand in relationship to the source of light. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
This one uh, is the, takes the most commentary, so uh, the, the rest will not be as long. The next one is this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, not what we would expect. Why, why is mourning a blessing? I think it's helpful uh, to interpret these beatitudes in the, in the order in which they are provided. One leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. If we have come to terms with our spiritual poverty, with how far God appears to us, for how far we imagine ourselves in, as a distance away from God, we of course would be mourning that. And my desire is, is to know Christ, to be, to experience and to know union with God. And I've grown so much closer to Christ in the last 25 years of following him. But boy, I think about how far away I am from the God I know. And that is a cause for mourning, for grief. Do we know what it means to mourn that which separates us? from the love of God. When we talk about the spiritual disciplines, we're not talking about formulas that make us woo-woo and you know, more spiritual and sort of levitate and things like that. Um, the disciplines are simply a means of creating space so that we can attend to the grace of God in our life, who alone can bring us back to life. And anyone who has attended to just how dependent they are on the grace of God, inevitably will become meek. And that's number three. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In the first century, uh, the meek were those who worked in the fields, and they didn't own anything. Uh, the landowners were not meek. They were bossy, and they were cruel. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In other words, as St. Francis would say, blessed are those who don't own anything, for they will own everything. Uh, it's, all, it's all God's. Again, this is not what we would expect. Blessed are the meek. I, I think Jesus is probably the only one who talks like this. Uh, imagine a coach saying to the team, all right, everybody, I want you to go out on the field and be really meek out there today. Um, politicians don't get ahead in Washington, D.C. by practicing meekness. Corporations don't send their employees to diversity, equity, and meekness training. Um, it, it's not a popular characteristic in our society, but what if... What if, what if that is what characterized Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church? What if that was our reputation, that, that people would say, oh, those Mount Olympus people, oh, they're, they're so meek. What a strange thing that would be. But it could happen. It could happen. It's important to keep in mind that meekness is not the same thing as weakness or passivity or being a doormat, which leads to victimization. N.T. Wright uh, used a wonderful image to talk about meekness. He said, meekness is kind of like what you get when you see um, a powerful wild horse that has been tamed. All the same power, just under control. A, a synonym for meekness is gentleness. And it takes a great strength to be sincerely gentle with one another. To choose to practice gentleness. 
But we will never be able to be gentle with others until we have first learned to be gentle with ourselves. And we cannot first learn to be gentle with ourselves until we have received the gentleness of Jesus Christ in our life. Only the strong can be gentle. I'm continually impressed by how much of spirituality in the spiritual life is really just about paying attention. Paying attention each and every day to the simple acts of grace that are coming toward us every day and, and then being made grateful, pausing to be grateful for those little graces. And then out of that gratitude for that grace, then finally being free to do what we're called to do, which is to love God and to love one another. Life begins by grace. It is redeemed by grace. And blessed are the meek who know how to receive each day as more unfolding mystery of grace in their life. Now we come to number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The word in Greek is dikaiosune. It could also be translated as justice. There's two words in, in the Hebrew scriptures uh, for righteousness and justice, mishpat and zedekah. Um, so sometimes it's translated as righteousness. Sometimes it's translated as justice. Um, hunger and thirst are created conditions. Every morning we wake up and we're confronted with our hunger. And when we satisfy that hunger, it's not satisfied for very long. We become hungry again in a few hours. Hunger and thirst is a created condition. But not only are we hungry for food, we're hungry for intimacy. We're hungry for meaningful work. We're hungry for community. Um, we're, we're hungry for all kinds of things like this. Um, we're hungry for joy and for beauty and for truth. We know about being hungry and thirsty, but to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not an English word that many of us prefer. Uh, when we hear the word righteousness, we often think of thin-lipped piety and people wagging their fingers in judgment at us in self-righteousness. I don't know many people who use the word righteous as a descriptor on their LinkedIn page. Um, if you go to a party and you describe yourself as being righteous, you will spend the rest of the party by yourself in a corner. Um, it's, uh, but all of this is born out of a misunderstanding, a misconception of the word. The word simply means to be made right, to be made right, um, to be made right with God to be made right with ourselves, to be made right with one another, and for the world to be put back to rights, for justice to be done in the world, for the world to be right again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be made right. Now, like the other Beatitudes, this, this one um, surprises us too. It's not what we would expect. What we would expect Jesus to say is, blessed are the righteous. Blessed are those who have achieved righteousness. Blessed are those who are so righteous on the outside, you can't even tell that they have a, any darkness in their heart at all. But any time that someone encountered Jesus who considered themselves to be righteous, they were met with a whole lot of rebuke, harsh rebuke. But those who were hungry and thirsty 
for righteousness in their own lives, in the world around them, while they encountered the grace of Christ. It doesn't matter how much you study or how much you learn. It doesn't matter how much you give or how much you volunteer. You cannot make yourself right. The reason we practice these spiritual disciplines, again, is because they open us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit who binds us into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is only His righteousness that we're interested in. Number five, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are those who give mercy, for they will receive mercy. Mercy is like love. The more that you give, the more that you receive, and the only way to lose it is to try to hold on to it. I'll say that again. Mercy is like love. Uh, the more you give, the more you receive, and the only way to lose it is to hold on to it. It means it's kind of like a muscle. When you exercise mercy, you receive mercy, you grow in mercy. Um, and so the Beatitudes are best understood, as I mentioned, in order. They're not if-then statements, they're blessings, but they build on each other. It's only as we discover that our lives have been made right by the embrace of Christ, only by having received that mercy, are we then able to give mercy to others. If you don't think of yourself as a very merciful person, or better yet, if those around you don't think of you as a very merciful person, if you're known more by um, your judgments and uh, the convictions that you push onto others, you're not going to become merciful until you're clear about how much mercy you've received. And then you can enter into the community of giving and receiving mercy. I want to try to uh, describe this progression through a story. The, the late Father Roland Walls um, was, was a leader in the ecumenical movement and the contemplative movement in the UK. He was an Anglican priest, later turned Roman Catholic priest. And there was a significant turning point in his life that he writes about. And it took place on a three-day retreat, and, and it was a silent retreat. And they, on the first day, the abbot gave him three words, one phrase, and he said, I want you to meditate on this one phrase for the entire day. Let go of all your thoughts, sit in one place, and contemplate this phrase, God loves me. Just all day, God loves me. So he did that. Day two came and the abbot said, okay, you focused all day on God loves me. Now today, I want you to focus the entire day meditating on the phrase, I can love God. So he did that for day two. Day three came and Father, uh, the abbot said to Father Roland, okay, now is the hardest one of all. I want you to spend all day focusing on the phrase, I can love others. The order, the progression of these days was absolutely critical to his inner transformation. It was only by attending intentionally in a focused way to the love of God and discovering that by grace we've been given the capacity then to love God in return. Uh, Henry Nouwen says that when we, we, um, we spend our, God says I love you and we spend the rest of our lives trying to say I love you back, uh, I love you too. Uh, 
Um, and, uh, and then when we are able to do that, then we can fulfill our calling of loving our neighbor. We cannot become merciful without attending to the love of God ourselves. Now we come to blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. To be pure doesn't mean to be without sin. It means to be unadulterated. Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher. He wrote an entire book on this beatitude under the title, um, to be pure of heart is to will one thing, that our hearts need to will one thing. Blessed are those who will one thing. Well, I guess that's a blessing, but I wouldn't know because my heart wills so many different things and they're often in conflict with one another. In fact, sometimes I look at my heart and it feels like the House of Representatives going on. Everyone's trying to become the speaker. Pick me, pick me, pick me. Um, there's work, there's family, there's health, there's the things I've got to do, there's the stuff I want to do. How do I make my heart will one thing? Well, to be pure of heart doesn't mean to ignore real life, nor does it mean to live without sin. In fact, what it means is to live, to will the grace of Jesus Christ in every one of the spheres in our lives. We should not make a priority list that has God on the top and then our family and then our work and then our friends because as soon as you make a priority list like that and you list God at the top, you're saying the rest of the nine things are without God. The point is that God would be at the top or in the center of every single one of those spheres of our lives, of our family, of our friendships, of our church, of our workplace, wherever we find ourselves. Um, and what that means then, to will one thing in all of these spheres of life, it means that we have to let go of our backup plans. It means that we've got to get rid of plan B our just-in-case plans. We're happy to call ourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ, but in just in case this uh, Jesus thing doesn't work out, I've got a few other things up my sleeve. You know, we're talented, we've got degrees, we've got hard work, you know. But to be pure of heart is to know the blessing of not having anything up your sleeve. I'm counting on the love of God. I am counting on the grace of God. I've given up plan B. Blessed are those who are counting on the love of God, for they can see God. Why can they see God? Because they've gotten out of their own way. Finally, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now we get to the agency of the humankind. Everything else up to this point is about the agency of God and Jesus Christ in our lives. Now here's our grateful response. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If you want to know what it means to be a child of Jesus Christ, of the Prince of Peace, be a peacemaker. The most important thing to keep in mind or to remember about being a peacemaker is to never confuse it with being a peace lover or being a fan of peace or thinking that peace is probably a good idea. No, we're called to be peacemakers, um, to, to go out of our way to make peace. If we've taken on the identity of Jesus Christ, then we've also taken on his mission and peacemaking is among those things. Um, and Graham is searching for peace in his heart. But this is a risky calling, and one of the greatest risks is that we have to give up the certainty or the, our, 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 our need to be right all the time. 
um, because it's always the clash of right positions and the fear of disagreement that leads to conflict. My favorite Christmas movie is, uh, I shared it with you last Christmas Eve, it's Joyu Noel. And it tells the true story that unfolded on the battlefield one Christmas Eve in World War I. The French troops were dug into their trench. The Scottish troops alongside them were dug into their trench. And the Germans who they were fighting were 50 yards away dug into their trench. They had been engaged in this bloody battle all day long, but during a ceasefire on Christmas Eve, one disillusioned German soldier began to sing Silent Night, and the tender power of that carol pierced the hearts of all the soldiers in, in each of their uh, trenches. And when the song was done, the soldiers applauded, and the Scottish, one of the, a Scottish bagpiper emerged then from his trench and began to play, O Come All Ye Faithful. And so everyone was singing, O Come All Ye Faithful, in their own language across enemy lines. It was like a Pentecost moment on Christmas Eve. They, and then eventually, as the hymn was done, they laid down their weapons, they climbed out of the trenches and approached each other for an evening to celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace. Our world is still deeply entrenched. It's still us versus them. And it makes us afraid. Sometimes we, we poke our heads out of our trenches, but usually only long enough to take a shot. But anytime we're ready, we can respond to Christ's invitation to be peacemakers, to lay down our weapons, to climb out of our trenches with those who agree with us and those who are like us in order to be introduced to someone that might have a different story. And maybe even to others who have hurt us, potentially even to someone who we would think would be an enemy, but we can't make peace while we're still in our trench. Friends, this is what the world needs today. If only the church would put it into practice. Gracious God, we thank you for this challenging sermon and the introduction of this greatest message ever told in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Give us your Holy Spirit so that we might live it and practice it. In Jesus' name, amen.